Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, with just days before the midterm election, we're going to dive into some of the hottest topics du jour, including the horrific attack on Speaker Pelosi's husband and subsequent disinformation campaign and the very hot Los Angeles races for mayor and sheriff. That's right. We have two amazing guests today. In a bit, we'll be joined by L.A. Times columnist Gustavo Ariano to talk politics and the City of Angels. But first, we have Shannon Bond here in studio. She's a correspondent for NPR and covers online myths and disinformation. Shannon, welcome to The Breakdown. Thanks hey for there. having me. Hey. So we thought of you because... You're in our building and and you cover all of this. And it's been such a crazy week. Um, You know, this attack happened last Friday in the early morning hours. And I guess to start, could you kind of just lay out what happened in the hours and days that followed? What disinformation began spreading and who was spreading it? Yeah, well, we saw almost immediately, um, you know, I think whenever these attacks happen, right, people are trying to figure out what are the motives, what happened here. Um, and we saw really quick reporting showing that this attacker, you know, had an online presence suggesting that he had really embraced a lot of, you know, conspiracy theories popular among the far right, you know, COVID vaccine conspiracies, conspiracies about the 2020 election. Um, this was being written in his own words in a, in a blog his daughter told the LA Times he had authored, seemed pretty clear line. Immediately, we then started hearing some pushback, from, especially from Republican politicians and other conservative commentators online, you know, questioning that, saying, you know, so, so it, started, it, it ranged from this real, you know, just just asking questions. Did it really happen the way it happened? Is this person, you know, really who we think he is, including Ted Cruz suggesting, you know, he, this is a, a leftist Berkeley hippie, couldn't possibly be, be a right wing, a right wing perpetrator. Um, and then you also had the kind of full range of just, you know, really lurid, baseless, just, you know, attacks on the motivation and just this whole idea that it was not at all what it had seemed. And that ended up being passed around pretty extensively online. Well, and including by the wealthiest man on earth, Elon Musk, who now owns Twitter, and he retweeted something and one of these crazy conspiracy theories that was, you know, quickly debunked. And he later deleted the tweet. But by that time, the damage is done, right? Right. I mean, it already been. You know, first of all, he has 112 million followers on Twitter, right? So and, and, <laughs> the minute he pushes a tweet. Right. <laughs> and, you know, all eyes are on Elon Musk right now. He just closed this deal to own Twitter. You know, he's been like left and right making policy 
policy announcements and plans and polls. And so, you know, I think you know what he says matters. And so, yes, he deleted the tweet, but not until it had already been retweeted tens of thousands of times, liked by tens of thousands of people. And, you know, I think he's always been this sort of wild character and has used his Twitter account to, you know, to flame and to <laughs> inflame and to troll. It's a different matter, though, when you are the owner and the CEO of this platform, especially at this moment when everyone is asking questions about what his ownership means for the way the platform <laughs> enforces its rules. And where he's trying to have his cake and eat and, it, too, and, a bit on that. And, of course, he relies, Twitter relies on advertisers. What kind of reaction uh, are they having? Well, I mean, it's not just what Elon has said, right, and this deleted tweet. There's also the, basically from the minute that it was announced that he had closed this deal, um, there was a spike in hate speech on Twitter. There was actually what looked like a coordinated campaign originating on some other far right platforms uh, to go onto Twitter and spread anti-Semitic memes, spread racial slurs, you know, spread, just basically kind of make it seem pretty toxic. It seems to be this idea they were trying to push is that like Elon's in charge, the rules are already gone now. To be clear, Twitter has not changed its rules, but just the possibility that that could happen is really worrying people. And so we've heard advertisers, you know, are maybe getting cold feet. Um, there's some who are talking about suspending advertising. They've had meetings with Musk. They've sent open letters saying, look, you know, brand safety matters to us. We don't want our brand on this platform if it's going to be next to this kind of content. And so there's this real question about the fact that it's already happening and Twitter hasn't changed any rules, what will happen if he does make changes? Back to the Pelosi attack, which, you know, we should say it is just so scary to have what, you know, has come out in the coming days that this was a targeted potentially assassination attempt on the speaker, the you know second in line to the presidency uh, just days before an election when we know that the sort of misinformation, whether it's bots or just bad actors, is already ramping up. Um how like how political is it? You mentioned this idea that like the right was pushing back because it seemed like this guy, you know, was sort of promoting QAnon and MAGA conspiracies. But like, is that does that even matter? You know, whether it's right, left, whatever, because it just seems like once these ideas take hold, they race through, especially the online kind of universe like wildfire. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I mean, first of all, I think what we certainly saw during the pandemic is a lot of this conspiracizing has sort of you know fallen away or broken away from maybe when we think about traditional sort of political categories. And you do have people who maybe historically had been across the political spectrum who have been drawn into this. I mean, QAnon is a great example of right. that. You know, it's been it, there's been a sort of a whole channel into QAnon through, you know, what we would consider traditionally left leaning wellness community. Right. right. The chiropractors. Chiropractors others, or yeah. yoga moms or, you know, mm. you know, kind of the granola crunchy influencers. And so, 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 yeah. So, I think I think it's not just you know. It, I think you do see this crossing political boundaries, but I do think at the same time a lot of this has you know aligned with what we have seen is embraced by the Republican Party, right? Of, and Trump specifically, and Trump specifically right. of you know disinformation, false claims about election fraud. Well, and it's they're normalizing it as well. Yeah. It's just now you it's almost par for the course that when something like this happens or anything really, it's susceptible to this kind of these conspiracy. Theories. And this idea, like the Joe sort of Roganism of all this, I'm just asking a question, like how. How, how do people push back on that? Well, I mean, I think this is kind of one of the problems, too, because, you know, one of the problems in my job, I one of the things I'm doing is talking about, you know, th stories or conspiracy theories that don't have any kind of basis in reality. And there is this question of like, are you if you're encouraging people to be more skeptical of what they see and which I think people probably should be. 
does can you also go too far? Like, mm-hmm. if we're encouraging so much skepticism, that actually leads to this sort of attitude of, well, I'm just asking questions. Maybe I shouldn't take anything people are saying on face value. And I think there's a really delicate balance there. But I do think what you come back to is you have to root it in, you know, here are the facts that we know. Here are, you know, here's the documentation that we have. But I think we're also always going to face these claims that any kind of attack, you know, whether it's the attack on, on Paul Pelosi, whether it's, you know, the, the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, you know, the, the first thing you hear in many of these communities is this is a false flag. Mm. Well, you've talked about the, the idea of pre-bunking, which is to kind of get ahead, try to get ahead of these sorts of conspiracy theories and lies. How does that work and how effective is it? Yeah, this is this really interesting strategy that a lot of folks are, are doing research into and has now started to be actually moving out of academia and being adopted by the likes of companies like Twitter and Google, um, by government agencies, by some civic groups. And it's, it's seen as a complement to sort of straightforward fact-checking or correcting the record. The idea here is if you can expose people, maybe make people more familiar with either potential false claims or the kind of the tropes and styles by which false claims are advanced, whether it's about scapegoating or emotional language, you know, or appeal to partisanship, um, you can kind of help people better recognize it and then hopefully kind of resist it when they see it but out But these there. are people who are not already down the QAnon rabbit right. hole. Yeah. Right? So that's the real yeah. question here is like, who is the audience? So how do we talk to uncle whoever at Thanksgiving if they are down one of these conspiracy theory rabbit holes? Is there any... I mean, easy advice you give. There's there's lots of research. I don't know if there's any super easy advice. There's lots of research into this. I mean, I think one of the things to, that I think is important to, that we when we think about this as a problem and as engaging, you know, whether it's a story that you know I as a reporter am engaging it, or we're at thanks at the Thanksgiving dinner table is trying to understand what it is about these beliefs that are doing something for somebody, right? I mean, I think we focus a lot on the negative impacts, but I also think there's a reason people are attracted to conspiracy theories and some of these these communities because they provide community, mm-hmm. because they provide answers in a world that is very confusing and, you know, very unsettling. And and so I think it's, you know, it can be hard, but I think there is about having a bit of empathy and trying to understand what is it, asking questions. Well, why do you believe that? What's, what is this doing for you? Right. Not make it a fight, but sort of yeah. invite somebody in. And invite, and maybe that can open a dialogue. Yeah. All right. We're going to leave it there. We should say we're talking to Shannon Bond. Uh, she is on, she covers online mis- and disinformation for NPR. And we are taping this on Wednesday, so there could be updates uh, in the this whole uh, drama. And we should also say just our thoughts go out to the Pelosi family. It is just hard to imagine. So just terrible. horrific. Yep. Shannon, thank you for coming in. We really appreciate you. Thanks so much for having thank me. Thank you. All right. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we will have LA Times columnist Gustavo Ariano uh, with us to talk about LA. This is Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 
Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are thrilled to welcome back Gustavo Ariano. He's a Los Angeles Times columnist, a Southern California native, and he has been following all the local local races in LA this year. Gustavo, and loco, loco yeah. as well. Yeah, the loco, 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 loco. <laughs> uh, Gustavo, welcome back to the breakdown. Gracias for having me again. I think last time we had you, you were not uh, this uh, accomplished L.A. Times journalist. <laughs> you were uh, still uh, banging trees down there in Orange County. I, I, I'm still a hack reporter, so <laughs> I'm not disappointing anyone at all. All right. Well, we want to talk about the mayor's race, the sheriff's race, all that. But we got to start with the scandal, right? I mean, you helped break this story just a few weeks ago uh, about three Latino members of the Los Angeles City Council caught on tape along with a labor leader saying some pretty horrible racist things, uh, really kind of not sparing most communities, but especially going after uh, the black community in Los Angeles. I mean, you know a lot of these folks. You've covered this town for so long. Tell us what went through your head when you first heard this audio recording. I'm actually new to covering Los Angeles because, of course, I was in Orange County That's forever. True. But, of course, I knew you know all, all these guys. Them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I knew them all by reputation, though. I had talked to Kevin DeLeon. I interviewed him for um, a podcast I did about the 25th anniversary of Prop 187. I, of course, knew about Gil Cedillo, another council member, and his long fight to allow uh, undocumented people to be eligible for driver's licenses in California. Nuri was the one I didn't know much about. And Ron Herrera, of course, was a, le- a labor leader down in Orange County. I know I knew also that these were the this was lat, this was political power in Los Angeles and they happened to be Latinos. This also in many ways would have been something to be proud of. Like here you have these folks being at the game and then to hear them just spout conspiracies, inanities and just slurs against everyone. I, I mean, so, so many people. It was dispiriting. It was disheartening. And I have to say, though, the reaction to it, the collective disgust, that has been something to take solace in that mm. how quickly almost all of Los Angeles united to say, no, we do not want this from our leaders. You uh, you know, obviously there was a distinction. Nuri Martinez, uh, who resigned, was really taking the lead in this conversation that was taped. Uh, Gil Cedillo, Kevin DeLeon said you know things here and there, but mostly didn't stop her. Or say anything. Same with Ron Herrera, the labor leader. Do you, do you see any distinction, or is it like you know? Oh no, not Look, at all. The, the the sad thing about this tape, it's like uh like like a, the Rosetta Stone. Like you keep reading it again and again and again. And if you have a certain key, you learn more things. For instance, literally just a couple of days ago, someone told me, "Hey, they called Oaxacans, you know, uh, folks from southern Mexico, Indios," and that literally translates as Indian, but it has a far harsher connotation in Mexico, far far more negative. So I'm like, I don't remember listening to it. So I listened to it and all four of them. This is in the section where they're making fun of Oaxacans. Nuri Martinez calls them short and ugly. Gil Gil Cedillo calls them little ones. Kevin DeLeon expresses mock wonder that some of them now wear shoes. And Ron Herrera calls them, oh, yeah, my mom called them indios. All four of them right there. So I, you know equal culpability to all of them, in my opinion. Yeah, Nuri said more of the stuff, but remember, they were all there thinking, how do we destroy black political power in Los Angeles and get Latino political power in its way? They're all culpable. They should all resign. I mean, Ron and Nuri resign now. Gil's going to be out of a job in a couple of weeks. And Kevin, he's the one who's really just holding on tight for dear life. But I mean, you you know, you say that they're purpose was to sort of expand Latino power. And it's true that Latinos are underrepresented in powerful positions in Los Angeles, given the numbers. 
but this felt very self-serving. I mean, what do you think the Latino community has taken from this? Do you think that these folks were actually trying to help people, especially given the comments you just pointed out about Oaxacans? They absolutely have their entire career. This, this is the disappointment in this. This isn't like these new politicos who are coming in and say like they only cared about themselves. And look, they're all politicians are self-serving and people get at me for saying that, oh, you can't be so cynical. But it's true. All politicians are ultimately self-serving. That's not to say they don't have good intentions. So Kevin DeLeon has been before this seen as a progressive champion. I mean, that's why some progressives asked him to run against Diane Feinstein for the U.S. Senate seat back into 2018. Another people asked him to run for mayor and you know in this past primary which he came in third place they had all been advocates for latinos but it's one thing to advocate for your particular community it's quite another thing that once you get into political power you assume the same worldview and mindset that the previous political class that you spent your entire career trying to dismantle so when it comes to Look, in many ways yes the, all this was at the end was ethnic politics one group trying to screw over the other group Irish and the Germans did that in Chicago. The Italians and the Jews did that in New York City. But do we really want that in the United States anymore? Or can we imagine something different? And that's where I think I think this really put it in stark terms that if we think our democracy is in peril, part of that does mean you have to build cross-cultural coalitions. And part of that does mean even if you're the majority, you have to acknowledge that the black population, which has been decreasing in Los Angeles, they deserve representation as well. Then, yes, that should be above their uh, particular population or percentage yeah. in Los well, Angeles. Well, and of course, this landed right in the middle of a hot election campaign. And I'm wondering if you think this benefits you know, either Karen Bass, the uh, black uh, congresswoman who's running uh, against Rick Caruso, former Republican turned Democrat, uh, d d you know, you could see easily how, you know, given her history of sort of reaching across racial divides, being kind of a healer that they would help Karen Bass. But the polls at least don't seem to show that. But what's your take on how it all affects uh, the race? That's going to be interesting. And I can't say because a lot of people want healing. Karen's a perfect person to do that. Uh, you know, she was one of the co-founders of Community Coalition, this dairy group in South Los Angeles, created in the wake of the L.A. riots to heal that division between black and Latinos. On the other hand, Karen and has Asian been Americans, a right? Yeah, Asian Americans. Yeah, and yeah the, the, all the population in South L.A. On the other and you have a lot of disgust with politics right now. Karen has been a politician now for almost 20 years. And so this idea of an outsider, that's where Rick Caruso comes in. And look, it's easy for us in the media class to make fun of his hotels, to make fun of his malls. But they're the ones who are you know, seeing millions of people, not our panels that we have for the public. So <laughs> I and I and, and it say that, but it's absolutely true. So and so I did a column following Rick Caruso because he, of course, has spent, I think, at this point, almost one hundred million dollars of his own money to basically buy the election. But it's easy to say that, especially when it comes to Latinos who are favoring him, according to the polls, and they can serve as a swing vote. But it's another when Rick's actually walking the ground. I mean, there uh, there's a pupuseria in South L.A., La Flor, La, La, La Flor Blanca Salvadoreña. Rick Caruso has now uh, employed them twice to do catering for his own events. And that's a damn good restaurant. So it's not like Rick's doing stuff. Whoever he hires. It's not a it's just AstroTurf. Exactly yeah. <laughs> if you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Our guest today is L.A. Times columnist Gustavo Ariano. Um, well, you mentioned that column where you spent time with Rick Caruso. You also had dinner with Karen Bass and her stepchildren, I guess you would call them, um, who are Latino themselves. I, I mean, what did she say? And are you seeing that kind of excitement for her in any communities? 
Oh, absolutely. Look, this is uh, Karen is a legend. She is. I mean, obviously, she has been sent off to Congress, what, for about a decade from her particular uh, district in South Los Angeles. But one of the things that a lot of people don't know about Karen yet is her stepchildren. So she married, you know, she married and had a a child with a man. They divorced. And then that man had children with someone else but Karen was in their life since the very beginning and they're still like and when I went I requested this dinner I said well look I want to do a profile on something that I think will speak to who you are and how you'll uh, be up and I had never met them before if there if there was going to be awkwardness if you could like you could tell when people actually talk to each other but it was nothing but love Mm -hmm. and I you know I remember Karen pushed back immediately when I said like well don't you think it's weird that like you you know, divorces are almost always acrimonious. And yet here you are having helping to raise children that are not biologically yours. And she said, no, look, adults is one thing, but for children, it's always about the children. And it was so wonderful. We shared half a Sapporo. We ate a lot of Korean barbecue. It was awesome. <laughs> you, you mentioned uh, that you, or Marisa did, that you hung out quite a bit with Rick Caruso. And in your column, which was a terrific column, you, you say that uh, you talk about how much appeal there is in the Latino community, maybe particularly with men. But, uh, you know, talk about that. What is it about him that the community seems to like? He is the grandchild of immigrants, Italian. He again, he has created facilities that a lot of Latinos go to the Americana brand, the what's the one next to the the old farmer's market near what used to be the CBS studios. A lot of Latinos go there. A lot of Latinos go out to shop and just hang out with the family. And also, I'm going to say it, Caruso. Sounds like a Latino name. In fact, people have come to me and say like, oh, Caruso, he's Latino, right? I'm like, no, Caruso is Italian. (laughs) But that little mistake, like little things like that. And so when I went to South L.A., you saw that excitement there. You saw and look like for, for billionaires, most billionaires that I've encountered, I haven't encountered that many, but they're all very awkward and very weird. Rick is not awkward. Hmm. Rick is very garrulous. I saw that. And that goes a long way for better or for worse. That goes a long way. And I, you know, same thing. Like if I thought I was going to be fake, I would have said that he did have a meet and greet with uh, telenovela star Kate del Castillo, which was completely canned and completely fake. And so I said that. But the it, the reactions he had with actual folks, that was real. So, I mean... It felt coming out of the primary like Bass was in a pretty strong position. Caruso had spent tens of millions at that point as well, and she beat him pretty handily. But, you know, polls are showing the the race tightening up. What do you think it would say if Caruso won? Oh, my God. That would be if the leaked city council tape was a political earthquake, this would be like a big bang because (laughs) the only way Caruso wins because remember, Los Angeles is still very progressive. It's a very blue city. It's I mean, Republicans are like nothing. That's why Caruso. Uh, well, he says he left the Republican Party because it left him. But come on. Um, but, you know, <laughs> the only way Caruso wins, he has to get the Latino vote. He's already going to have the Asian vote. The Asian-Americans are even more enthusiastic about Rick than uh, Latinos are. And then he's going to have to get disaffected liberals who do not like how the Democratic Party has swung so much to the left. I don't know if it's going to happen. He's still all that money cannot, uh, you know, win an election that easily of that magnitude. But if it does, what a day of reckoning. 
And of course, it's Los Angeles, so it will re- reverberate for you know all across uh, um, the United States. Yeah, well, and I think also New York. Uh, Eric Adams, the mayor there, is yeah. a former Republican, former cop. So you'll have uh, the two biggest cities uh, run by former Republicans. Yeah. <laughs> so let's move on to a different race, though the sheriff's race. The one you're really a, having fun is with. really <laughs> uh, really interesting. You've got the incumbent sheriff Alex Villanueva running against Robert Luna, the former police chief in Long Beach, and. Four years ago, Villanueva seemed to be like the Democratic great hope, uh, but he turned out to be something very different than uh, what he presented himself as. What what do you make of the dynamics of that race? So Villanueva, from the minute I thought something was off with him and I thought all you had people like uh, Gloria Molina, the legendary uh, ex-supervisor of Los Angeles County, Dolores Huerta, the labor leader, all lining up for Villanueva because he vowed to kick ice out of the L.A. County jails. But I'm like. You have to be a little bit more skeptical of who he is. And then he comes into office, starts coddling up to deputy gangs, which he says he doesn't exist. And then in the next breath says, well, calling them deputy gangs is racist. And then in the next breath will say, well, I saw the deputy gang problem. So what you're seeing here is a public that just does not trust him anymore because of the many scandals created by himself. Villanueva is not a dumb person. And his biggest problem is is himself. He is his own worst enemy. People try to now compare him to be like, oh, like Trump, this loudmouth. No, 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 no. He's Richard Nixon. I spent early in March, I spent a one hour, uh, I had a one hour conversation with him. We were supposed to talk about the Latino essence of the LA Sheriff's Department. You know, what does it mean now when law enforcement is over 50% Latino? Like, what does that mean? And instead, it went to all sorts of dog whistles of anti-blackness and petty grievances. And I have to say, Villanueva has not improved ever since. Well, I mean, what's it looking like for his challenger, uh, Luna? He's, uh, you know, former police, Long Beach police chief. He it seems like has really been growing in the polls. But like, are people even really talking about this race? I mean, level with us here. <laughs> because it, like, <laughs> oh. These seem like the types of races that we talk a lot and think about a lot in the media, but like not necessarily mean that the public is like super involved. No, they, they were talking. The subject of Villanueva is huge in L.A. County. It has been completely eclipsed in the past month by the leaked tape scandal. Mm-hmm. To I would say that's to Villanueva's benefit. Yeah. Luna has been smart in that pe- people still fit, don't know much about him, and he's trying to be quiet about it. And there's been some allegations that, you know, of anti-blackness at, when he was at Long Beach uh, Sheriff's de- uh, Police Department, and Villanueva has tried to nail needle him on that, but uh, Villanueva has his own thing. They had one debate in person. And it was bizarre because at one point Villanueva starts rattling off all the names of his wife's schools that she attended in East Los Angeles, <laughs> trying to imply that somehow uh, Robert Luna was not truly East Los Angeles. And Luna's response is like, I was born there. I moved when I was uh, seven years old to Santa Fe Springs, which is like a Latino middle class suburb. That was it. Villanueva, what on earth are you doing? Again, these petty grievances of paranoia, uh, it's the chip that keeps beating him, uh, the chip on his shoulder that keeps beating him up. What would you say is the overlap between support for Caruso and the support for Villanueva? Or is it just a totally different dynamic? No, 1,000%. All Villanueva supporters are going to support 
Rick Caruso. Maybe not all Rick Caruso supporters are going to support Villanueva, but look, Caru uh, Villanueva has all the Republicans, all the conservatives, all the people who think crime is out of control. Caruso's going to have those people as well. But, you know, Caruso does have, I will tell you, I'll say this. I know Latinos myself who despise Villanueva, but they want Caruso because they think uh, you need a businessman to take care of L.A. City Hall. And they feel bass while they like her is just not going to have the wherewithal to be able to do so. We have such a good track record in California and the nation of business people taking over. <laughs> I wonder, though, like, do you feel I, I mean, do you think that people outside of L.A. should care about this? Like you talked about crime. It seemed like that was something Caruso was hitting very hard in the primary. Uh, is this going to matter to somebody sitting in Orange County or San Francisco or the Central Valley? Well, yeah, if Caruso wins, it's because of Latinos. And if Latinos go for Caruso, they have dropped once and for all this illusion that they're natural progressives because they swung more to the right. It's something I think that's the last time we talked about the Rancho Libertarian vote. I talk mm -hmm. about, you know, especially Mexican-Americans whose family come from rural backgrounds, very libertarian in their ideology, but also very much about the community. But they also do not like people telling them that your beliefs are, you know, need to be canceled. And you have a lot of Latinos who are, do not feel in touch with the Democratic Party anymore. So if that happens again, because, you know, that's one of the big narratives coming out of the 22 midterms. Oh, Latinos are going more Republican. Latinos are leaving the Democratic Party. This will be unchallenged proof or the, the unequivocal proof that that actually happened. Very quickly. And, and, and really quickly with Villanueva, I would just say, you know, just the whole idea of sheriffs. I, it's something I really do believe we need to question because if someone like him, and he's not, he's not even close to the worst sheriff in uh, California. Yeah, y'all have a lot of weird ones up in the Sierras. He's got a lot of power <laughs> though, doesn't he there in LA? Oh yeah, the, the biggest sheriff's department in the country, 1,000%. All right, that is Gustavo Ariano, Los Angeles Times columnist, chewing over all those LA races with us and that city council scandal. Thanks for being here today. Thanks, Gustavo. Gracias. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Guy Marzoretti is our producer. Our engineer today is Jim Bennett. And as you may know, there are just a few days left to vote before Election Day on Tuesday. If you still need help, check out KQED's Voter Guide at kqed.org slash voter guide. And don't forget to join Marisa Guy and me and many others right here on Election Night. We'll be hosting live statewide coverage on KQED and other public media stations starting after the polls close. For today, I'm Scott Schaefer. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at M Lagos. Have a good one. Don't forget to vote. I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. 
Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 